Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Greg Lukianoff on the podcast. Greg is an attorney, New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE. He is the author of Unwarning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Most recently, he co-authored The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, with Jonathan Haidt. This New York Times bestseller expands on their September 2015 Atlantic cover story of the same name. Greg is also an executive producer of Can We Take a Joke, a feature-length documentary that explores the collision between comedy, censorship, and outrage culture both on and off campus. Greg, so excited to finally get a chance to talk to you. Yes, we have been meaning to do this forever, but COVID turned us into nomads for a bit. Yeah, and I'm glad this is finally happening, though. Me too. I was a big fan of Transcend. Oh, <laughs> I think you got my first ever Asher Bonneville Award. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I was very honored honored to get that. <laughs> I didn't know it was the first. For the audience, I decided just for fun to name my monthly award for my favorite book, the prestigious Asher Bonneville Award. <laughs> and the very first book I ever gave it to was Transcend. I thought it was a great book. And like I said at the time, it goes in the rereading pile, which is the stack of books to read, big, the stack of books to reread, quite small. Well, I'm very honored, and I see lots of areas of mutual understandings about the world and what's going on, and this call to transcend our tribalism, transcend... What else do we want to transcend here? We want to transcend a lot of things, don't we, that we're currently seeing in the world today? I have to say, I call myself temperamentally an optimist, but I'm not super... uh, You're not catching me at a particularly optimistic time. I think I'm really 
worried about the next six months. We were talking offline and I always point out, you know, I'm the head of a nonpartisan nonprofit and I take that very seriously, but I will just say I am worried about what the next six months are going to look like. Well, I think this is important to to talk about openly and honestly, because I think there are a lot of nonpartisan corporations, uh, companies, well, I don't know how many corporations are nonpartisan, but, you know, you know, nonprofits that are finding it increasingly difficult to not take a stand. Like, how do you not take a stand in what you see as the right side of history when you think about, like, Nazi Germany? It's like, oh, well, we're just nonpartisan, you know, we'll just kill all the Jews. You know, we'll, we'll be nonpartisan. We won't say anything. You know, it's like when, when you start things getting truly alarming, you know, like, at what point is it like it's cool to, like, say something? It's one of those things where yeah, I don't think we're I don't think we're quite at the uh, the, the Nazi Germany uh, level, and and I think that it's really important. You know, I'm I'm part of I, I jokingly refer to myself as the youngest member of the old school ACLU, um, and I actually worked at the ACLU. That was like my my, my biggest um, uh, proudest accomplishment when I was in law school was getting to intern at the ACLU of Northern California. That was like a lifelong dream of mine to do that. And I take that role extremely seriously. And I think one of the ways you avoid authoritarian outcomes is by, in a nonpartisan way, committing yourself to civil liberties. And most of all, of course, my darling, my favorite civil liberty of all, uh, unabashedly, is freedom of speech. And actually, oh, this is interesting, uh, Scott. We're coming out with a documentary called Mighty Ira, which I am over the moon about like and I, I can't emphasize how excited I am about this. And this comes from this was the brainchild of Nico Perino, the host of our podcast, so to speak, is the name of the podcast. And he interviewed Ira Glasser, who was the not Ira Glass because people get confused sometimes. He was the executive director of the ACLU from I think 1979 to 2001. Um, he took over right after the Skokie situation. Uh, I'm sure listeners know, but in, in 1978, thereabouts, the ACLU defended the, the right of Nazis to march in Skokie. And this is particularly you know, interesting because you end up having uh, you know, largely Jewish lawyers, some of them whose parents survived the Holocaust and were actually in camps. Ari Nair what, what was the person in charge before Ira Glasser, and uh, you know he he lived in a community that was pretty much wiped out by the Holocaust, and he was most adamant about defending their rights because he understood that really um, ultimately the, the it's the civil liberties that actually keep the society free, and as soon as you start compromising on it, the other side will compromise on it too. So we made a whole documentary about the life and times of Ira Glasser because we feel like he's underappreciated. Partially, and he did so many, many amazing things. You know, he took the ACLU to, to a level of national prominence that hadn't been previously, even though it was, you know, relatively well known. And he really practiced what he preached. He, he was actually, he ended up being, um, he's, you know, he, he's a lefty, but he was friends with Bill Buckley from National Review and from um, Firing Line, I think was the name of the show. You know, he would go on and he's willing to debate anyone. And he did it all with good humor um, and intelligence. And one of the one of the causes he was the most serious about was actually you know, racial equity. Uh, uh, for, uh, and so one of the things that inspired him to get into civil liberties in the first place was quite literally Jackie Robinson going to play for the Dodgers. And, and there's actually an amazing the, the, there's an amazing metaphor in here. He, you know, he's from Brooklyn. And that what happened um, and he and he explained it, and this is something that I think you know social psychologists wouldn't enjoy in particular, is that just the actual 
experience of going to the stadium and seeing Jackie Robinson quite literally on his team, <laughs> he started to actually feel, you know, understand, you know, uh, uh, a lot of issues that he wasn't aware of, you know, like he, he, uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the audience itself was uh, well integrated. There were, there were people from all over Brooklyn coming, coming in to see the Dodgers and Jackie Robinson. And that really changed his, you know, uh, the direction of his life. Uh, and, and one thing that's amazing about it is that got him that he started finding out things like when the Dodgers would go to different cities in the South, Jackie couldn't stay at that hotel uh, because it was still segregated. And so he could, so the, this small, the, this small action by the Dodgers were not, you know, actually, of course, historical, but at the same time, in the grand scheme of things, it would seem relatively modest, set off a trigger of events that got a number of um, and uh, of people really activated about civil uh, about civil rights, um, and the, you know, um, and Ira really it, it, he, he uh, basically took everything from that experience, and that kind of decided the course of his life to a large degree. And again, I really have to emphasize, it was this sense of realizing that we're on the same team of of the expanding circle. You know, the idea of like of actually not breaking everybody into smaller and smaller groups, but actually emphasizing the fact that, you know, we're all equally people, uh, changed his life. Well, that's a beautiful realization. I just trying to think of what are the limits of free speech as you see it within your organization. In your charter, there are certain things that will not defend you, you know, if you get fired for being a serial killer. But free speech, I get to, you know, kill whoever I want. No, actually, you sure. don't get to do that in a, in a <laughs> democratic society. And what are the boundaries here? One thing that, you know, I, I talk about this in foreign countries um, a lot, and it's actually a very helpful way to understand uh, your own beliefs is to defend them in an audience that's not at all familiar with the culture you come from. I actually, I think that's one of my advantages in general is I'm a first generation American. I still, to a degree, see the U.S. with a little bit of a foreigner's eyes. And I think it can be very helpful. And the thing that I explain is that they think we're completely nuts over here um, and that the First Amendment is just completely out of control and that we're crazy about, uh, about free speech. And I have to explain, listen, it's actually not all that different except for a handful of different ideas. And the most important one is one that I wrote about yesterday, as luck would have it, completely coincidentally, um, called the bedrock principle. Um, that comes from the flag-burning opinion, Texas v. Johnson, in 1989. Um, and uh, the bedrock rule is, is that you can't ban something simply because it's offensive. Why? Because offensiveness is too culturally subjective. It changes from year to year. It changes from person to person. It, uh, it's different between people from different economic classes. I even point out that, as David Hume would love to point out, it's, it can even be different you know, in an individual depending on the time of day. So offensiveness just can't be the uh, justification for banning particular speech. However, um, the First Amendment also has exceptions, like, um, uh, for example, uh, uh, um, incitement to violence, you know, is, is the one that people usually start with. And that's, you know, the situation of like, let's go burn down the mayor's office in a situation where it's likely we're likely to burn down the mayor's office, defamation isn't protected by free speech, you know, claiming falsely, particularly knowingly, um, that someone is, you know, something horrible like a pedophile. That's not protected speech, nor should it. Threats are not protected speech, um, definitely. And it's also important to keep in mind that um, this binds the behavior of 
the government and government agents. So it applies at public colleges, it applies um, uh, at a state level, at the federal level, but for a lot of what we're seeing right now, um, we're talking about people working for companies getting, you know, the, the, the phrases, and it's sub, it become somewhat controversial, partially because Trump started using it, but someone gets canceled. Um, a private company is absolutely under no obligation to keep an employee who says something really, really unpopular that really angers people. However, um, from a cultural standpoint, I've been increasingly arguing that we should be we don't have to be perfectly tolerant, but we sure, I think we surely should be more than we're currently being. Fair enough, and that's a very um, uh, very fair statement uh, that is at a generality level without talking about specifics. Oh, and, and, and Scott, I did want to um, uh, say, say one thing. What, what, and one thing that makes me different from other um, you know, First Amendment advocates is that my, the, the dominant metaphor for freedom of speech is this marketplace of ideas argument. That essentially, um, uh, that ideas will battle it out in the marketplace of ideas, and the good ones will survive, and the bad ones will be discarded. And therefore, because we're a democracy, it's really good to have this marketplace of ideas. I've always thought the marketplace of ideas idea um, is inadequate. Um, you know, and everybody, even the originator of the idea, um, didn't didn't think that the good ideas always win. Mine is actually much simpler, um, but I also I, I very strongly believe that, it, that it's the right way to look at this, is that very simply, and, and whether you put on your, uh, your political hat or your scholarly hat or your scientific hat, um, it's always valuable to know what people really think and why. Full stop. Yeah, I think there's definitely an argument to be made there. When, when things go in the shadows... They tend, it's just like our own mind, as you know, with with CBT, but also with the, you know, the ACT approach um, to therapy, which I'm a big advocate of, acceptance and commitment therapy. You know, the more you do experiential avoidance of things within yourself, the stronger it becomes within you. And, you know, you keep things in the shadows within yourself. You, You kind of build them up to be like evil, you know, when sometimes you just integrate them into the rest of your life and you're like, oh, it wasn't that evil. I can deal with it. I can cope with it. So just applying the same principles to the, to the real world, you know, an analogy, you know, you keep ide- certain ideas in the shadows. We're, we're, we're kind of saying that we can't handle it, you know, like we, we wouldn't be able to, to deal with it and it might become outsized to its actual threat. Well, the, and there's also just the, the, the simple premise that it's probably just better to know. This came a little bit from Harvey Silverglade's. Uh, Harvey Silverglade is a co-founder of FIRE along with Alan Charles Coors. Um, Alan was a, a more conservative-leaning libertarian who's a scholar of the Enlightenment, and Harvey is a more left-leaning uh, civil liberties lawyer who lives up in, uh, uh, in, in Cambridge, used to be the um, president of the board of the ACLU of Massachusetts, for example. And he used to say, you know, but I, I thought this was a very vivid way to say it, um, I'd prefer to know who the Nazis in the room are. <laughs> Yeah, right. <laughs> it's a good point. So in a lot of ways, sometimes with censorship, people are saying, I would prefer to know less about the world in which I live. And and that has two damaging things. Is one, you might miss a threat, uh, and that's important to know. Um, but two, you might come to believe, and this is something that was very well covered in, in a book called um, Racial Paranoia by an African-American scholar named John L. Jackson, 
that it can actually start to seem, if you need these heavy-handed laws to prevent some people from saying horribly racist things, for example, that, that you might get the impression that things are actually far worse than you thought, and it can actually lead to a, a sense of, as you put it, paranoia. I do hear what you're saying. I'm trying to think of things from every possible side possible, and I, I want to really d dive deep into this with you. So, you know, th there are people, let's say someone who's uh, that's from the trans community, uh, trans rights, and they say, you know, some of these ideas are. They'll say they'll say things like it's harming the the harming trans people. Even sometimes it's it's causing deaths. You know, the certain la certain language is inciting. You know, you you did talk earlier about how inciting violence is, is something that you know we shouldn't promote in society. Uh, what what do you do when when you hear those kinds of arguments, and then uh, you're, you're kind of faced with a with a choice in a way? It's like do we who do we defend here you know are we defending the ones with the, the that that can say whatever they want or or do we defend those who say they're actively being harmed i mean you have to make these choices in your profession to a degree you kind of don't i mean ultimately my my job and and my my function is to, is to defend okay freedom of speech and i believe it's valuable to know what people really think under all circumstances and if um and surely you know people are allowed to argue that an argument uh, places them in danger. And actually, I think that that argument has been, um, unfortunately, extremely popular over the past couple of years. It's, and I, I actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say this flat out, I think that that is a dangerous rhetorical tactic that is currently being much overused. This happened at um, the New York Times uh, with when they were asking James Bennett, uh, when they were demanding James Bennett be um, uh, step down, and uh, th that was something that had been in the works forever. They they wanted to like the younger staff wanted to get rid of James Bennett almost since he started, particularly for bringing conservatives, you know, mildly conservative, I'd say, barely right of center, Barry Weiss, um, to to the New York Times, um, and uh, um, I forget the, the Brett's, um, I, forget, I forget Brett Stevens, um, you know, an anti-Trump Republican. And and what's you know I wrote about this on my, on my blog eternally uh, eternally radical idea because um, I just felt like I had to say something about it and I had to remind people James Bennett was hired specifically in 2016 to uh, address the fact that the New York Times since it had so badly guessed wrong on the Trump thing that there was a realization maybe we were out of touch maybe we need to know where people are coming from um, so they hired James Bennett, who'd done a wonderful work at The Atlantic. Uh, full disclosure, he published Coddling the American Mind, which I say to his credit because it was something that could have been viewed as controversial, even though, you know, for I'd at least say, say for several months after it, it wasn't particularly controversial. Um, and then eventually, uh, I think that the, the Times kind of forgot that was the point. So about a, a couple months ago, uh, Bennett decided to publish an article by Senator uh, Cotton that was defending um, something that I think is just a horrifying idea, um, calling in the troops in order to put down um, the uh, alleged riots going on all over the country. I say alleged because you know, in some cases, it, like I live in D.C., the, the idea that there were completely out of control riots is, is a big exaggeration. Um, and of course, this, what, he, what Cotton was suggesting goes against everything you know, I, I fight for. At the same time, he is a sitting senator. He, is, he was, and this is kind of terrifying, 
He was representing what was at the time the opinion of about 52% of Americans and the and the position of the president of the United States. And so, uh, and well, when, when they published this, one of the arguments that some of the staffers started making to justify, and, and to be clear, they wanted him gone anyway. They wanted Barry Weiss gone, was that uh, the New York Times publishing that article was putting um, black and brown reporters in danger. And that's one of those things where uh, under the current climate, the idea of saying, come on, you know, that, that's not really what happened is he public, he let people know that what I would consider to be, you know, a bad opinion, but an opinion that you can't afford not to know. And I watched all of, all of these arguments come up and I, but I really thought that the idea that like, this is putting people's lives at risk um, was something that was, and I'm going to say flat out, I think it was more of a rhetorical tactic than uh, empirically justifiable. It's interesting to think about people's biases towards what they say. Yeah, this this could really be a dangerous idea. We need to eradicate it, depending on what side that person is on. If it's someone on the far, far left, hears someone who's on the far right say something like, those ideas are, are dangerous to us alt-right people, could kill our lives. Do each of us apply these principles universally? It seems like no one's doing that. There's no universal... You know, we talked earlier about the importance of transcendence, and you resonated with my book, and I resonated with your book. There's a reason why we both resonated with each other's works. There's something that we're just desperate to transcend here. First of all, I, I don't think we like hypocrisy, right? So we can't say, let's eradicate all discrimination, but then have parentheticals like, well, only discrimination against people who are like me, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really tricky business um, because... Also, I assume you as well want to have empathy for those who are clearly in distress, psychological distress, over something. How do you balance that empathy with the arguments you've made about cognitive distortions? Because the easiest way to get someone who's mentally distressed to be even more mentally distressed is to tell them, well, you're really crazy. <laughs> you really have cognitive distortions. That's, that's not really good psychologically in the, in the psychological clinical space to, to really help someone by, by just saying that to them. So how do you balance all this? That's definitely a way it gets, it can be framed. Uh, but overall, I honestly think that Height and I are taking mental health more seriously than some of our critics. Um, and, I, and that's, you know, might sound kind of jarring, but here, here, here's, my, here, here's my observation going back to 2007. And this came from me having a, you know, a breakdown. Um, a, a, a psychological breakdown. Um, and would you mind reading this section from your book that I found so poignant? Well, okay, um, a little difficult. And I should I should preface uh, I'd never actually talked about this in this kind of detail with anybody. Um, and what was funny about writing it, not necessarily haha funny, but. Um, was that cosmically yeah, yeah was that i um kind of could do the thing and i and i i was like i'm going to intentionally delude myself and say to myself this is now just between me and my computer <laughs> um you know while trying to sort of like not think about the fact that this would probably end up being the single most public thing you know very likely i've ever done um uh so i could just try to be as honest about it as possible um, so here we go. Um, this is 
So have you never read this out loud? I read it one time out loud. In a podcast? Not in a podcast. I read it, I've, I've, I've only actually read it out loud one other time. Um, because, it, you know, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little difficult. Um, one thing that is funny, though, Scott, is that you, you can tell I'm, I'm not doing so poorly because my, um, uh, my sort of sense of humor kind of uh, asserts itself. So um, when well, I... It's a defense mechanism. Yeah, exactly. When I talk about really awful things. And, and I know, I did actually one time have a psychologist who, who was like, oh, when you talk about rough things, you got a smile on your face. Let's try to get, you know, try to overcome that. And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, I do this too. <laughs> I, I'm keeping that one. Um, yeah. because it, it works and it doesn't seem to, um, and you know, of course, if people think that, uh, if the idea is that you can't really feel pain, um, I can promise them I, I do just, uh, some, uh, I, I need the mechanisms, the healthy mechanisms I have. So anyway, here it goes. This is, um, December, I think of 2007. Um, I had spent the day scouring websites for ways to kill myself. At almost every turn, I found stories about how a method could fail leaving you still alive, but permanently injured. This even applied to shooting yourself. I could not risk that, so I went to the hardware store across the street looking for strong plastic bags and metal wire. The idea was to crush up all the sleeping med, tranquilizers, and anti-anxiety meds I had, take them all at once, and then wrap my head so that if the pills didn't kill me, suffocation would. But it had to be strong enough that I could not claw my way out of the bag if I had a change of heart. I needed to go through with it now, as uh, now, and I underline that, as quickly as possible. Because why? Because it was the right thing to do. And if I waited, I might not go through with it. And I needed to go through with it while I still had the will. I felt, uh, if I felt better, it would somehow be a lie. I had a powerful sense that I was in touch with some dark, larger truth that I needed to die. Uh, I don't know if uh, if it was briefly sensing how strange the thought was uh, that gave me the uh, gave me that flash of sanity that caused me to call 911. First, I started to explain I had a, 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 a what I had planned in a detached way. But soon I was crying. The voice on the other side uh, of the line told me to get myself to the hospital. And thank goodness I listened. Um, I, I walked to Penn, um, got myself checked in. I very nearly um, didn't get myself checked in because I, I was having second thoughts. I'm like, no, 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 I, I can't go. I can't. I can't be detained. You know, they, they can keep. They can hold you for three days once you check yourself in. Um, and uh, I had a you know a good psychologist there who, as I was trying to talk myself out of it, he just asked the simple question is like, Greg, are you normally like this? And I just burst into tears. Um, and, you know, like, basically, I didn't know if I was normally like that anymore. I was, I mean, Scott, I was so far gone. I thought my sister, who's a doctor, would help me kill myself. Um, because if I explained to her, uh, how in pain I was that of course she would. And I'm like, but, and that's one of the reasons why when people are very hard to pe hard on people who kill themselves, um, I, 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 and I've had friends, you know, kill themselves and I come to their defense when my friends are angry because it's like, listen, I was there too. And I was far gone. Like, this is not 
you're not talking to someone who's who's in an, uh, a state of mind that you can actually relate to if you haven't been there yourself. Wow. Well, Greg, first of all, thank you so much for being so uh, vulnerable and, and sharing that. And, you know, this is Suicide Prevention Month, I believe, right? Or something along those lines. There are a lot of people right now during COVID who are feeling the lowest maybe they felt their entire lives. This is just, this is it. Like, I'm bottom bottomed out right now. And look how far you've grown. I mean, do you do you read that sort of mindset and does it almost seem like a completely different person? You know, I was thinking about that very question and I, w- I, I was kind of like going through this discussion in my head because of course I was a little anxious about it. Um, and I was, um, and I was like, I, I heard the sentence, you know, in my head, it feels like a completely different person, but the truth is it doesn't. Um, it just, that's me. That's me right there. I, I remember this stuff very vividly and it was still me in there. Um, and just, uh, just a, a me that was overwhelmed by feelings that I haven't blessedly, and I'm an atheist, but I, I love religious imagery, um, had in a, in a really long time. Um, and I, and I gotta tell you, Scott, like I, it, it helps me talk to, um, I, I the, the most rewarding thing about writing the book, period, is that I still get people write, writing me and asking for help. And of course, you know, the, the questions are first, like, are you a threat to yourself? You know, like I, I have the whole patter down. Um, and, but that's the most rewarding thing of all of this, of writing the book or, and the article was how many people would write me to ask for, you know, advice. I even have a thread on the things that I advise <laughs> To be clear, the things that I advise, and I say this in the thread, but in case people don't read it very carefully, um, most of my advice are for things that are not anywhere near as far gone as as I was in that state. When you're that far gone, call, check yourself in, go get, you know, like that 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 kind of stuff. And if you know somebody's like that, um, uh, uh, check in. But yeah, I have had, um, I have had. Uh, you know, I was at Claremont McKenna and, and a student stood up and he looked, I thought he was mad at me. <laughs> you know? So I was like, oh, shit, I'm about to get a, about to get an earful. And he actually was talking, to, he, he just, he had that face because he was just, um, you know, struggling with what he was going to say. And he, and he said that he read the book, he was there himself. And it was really great to be able to say, like, guys, I love my life now. Um, like I, I have two gorgeous kids. I have a great wife. I live in a town that I love. I'm doing work that's valuable to me. I'm not yeah, you're flourishing. getting by. Mm-hmm. I'm thrilled about stuff. Like, 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 like yeah, like th- things are, th- things are actually kind of great. And, and that's going to be you too at some point. Like it, it and, and that kind of thinking when you're really in it is impossible. Um, but at least maybe in that circumstance, you can think, well, you know, Maybe there's a little bit of hope. It can be so hard when there's you feel this, like pressure on your chest that anyone who's had the depression uh, can resonate with that. The world, there's such a burden. You're a burden to the world. As far as sort of stereotypes about my work, sometimes people can assume it's all PC all the time, which is absolutely not true. Um, we, you know, we deal with uh, students on the on the left and professors getting on the left getting in trouble all the time. But there's also kind of a big middle of cases where they don't they don't get press attention. And this is like I'd say probably most of the cases we see at Fire, they involve things that are not 
particularly partisan and therefore not interesting to the press, which drives me nuts. Which that drives is, me bonkers. <laughs> which, which is one of the reasons why I insisted that in one chapter in the book, um, I, uh, I, uh, the one about um, uh, hyper-bureaucratized universities, I open up talking about a program at University of Northern Michigan um, that, uh, and I, I, I feel like this one valuable to explain the whole thing. So a student went into uh, counseling services at UNM, and uh, she was there to talk through a, uh, being raped. Uh, she had a sexual assault, and she didn't, re she didn't want to report the person, but she wanted to try to you know, get through the feelings about it. She didn't talk about any thought of her hurting herself. She wasn't planning to hurt herself. She just needed someone to talk to about it. And a couple of days later, after she goes to the counseling office, she gets an email from the administration, or actually, I think a letter that says, um, you know, we heard that you went to the counseling center. By the way, if you discuss uh, your thoughts of self-harm with your friends, you will be disciplined. And I think it was based on a, on a misunderstanding of contagion that essentially, you know, how if, if one person commits suicide, um, and there's a possibility that there'll be a little cluster, but that's not uh, that, that's not the case when people simply talk about it. Um, and in fact, talking about it is one of the healthiest things you can do. And when um, defending it, it was amazing hearing these administrators say things like, basically, if you could boil it down, it was like, well, you know, your friends are vulnerable too. Um, <laughs> basically, saying it's like, so you're saying that. I should isolate myself and I'm a burden to my friends. And what's, what's amazing about that is when you're in the depressed mindset, like you're absolutely right. And this was just such a messed up thing. And, and we fought this in public. As actually one of the ways we actually became friends with Jesse Singal, uh, who's become popular, uh, you know, in partially dealing with a lot of the anti-woke stuff. But his, it, his first kind of interaction with us was really about a case that was not in the slightest bit political. It was just a deeply inhumane program at University of uh, – and we found out that, they, that uh, at least dozens of students had been getting the same letter every semester. Okay, good. I'm really glad that we're starting to um, tear out some of these misconceptions around, your, around you and your, what you believe and what you stand for and what this book about. This has a good one. Let's talk about some more because the, the title of this book – that you wrote with Jonathan is the coddling, and and if I'm if I'm correct, you you didn't choose the word coddling, right? I don't like the title of my own book, and I'm stuck with it now. <laughs> um, it's funny. So, uh, the, long story again. Um, uh, 2015, I'd been thinking about this idea. Um, so, actually, we should fill in some gaps. Uh, 2008, I start studying cognitive behavioral therapy um, in order to overcome my depression. Uh, I also like to be clear, I was also helped by medication. Um, I, I, I want to be very clear about that because I don't want to say like I did it just with talk therapy. Um, I will say, however, I am one of the very many people who reacts very poorly to SSRIs. Um, so, um, but, I, but the other ones, you know, I'm currently on some that help me tremendously. That aren't SSRIs. Uh, that, that aren't SSRIs. So I start doing CBT and I'm sure your audience knows this, but CBT to me is, is is just incredibly profound also in its simplicity and what you do is you know several times a day particularly when you feel particularly sharp emotions come up you uh write down 
what your thought was when you when you had that unpleasant experience. So it can be, you know, like um, I always give like going on a date and it goes poorly and you say to yourself, I'm going to die alone. And you look at that and you ask yourself, is this a cognitive distortion? Um, and you say, well, that's mind reading. I don't really know if she hated me. Um, uh, that's uh, fortune telling. I don't really know that that's what the future looks like. It's definitely catastrophizing. It's a ridiculous overstatement of, of what happened. And it's not the power of positive thinking that you're, you're working towards. You're just trying to see it a little more clearly and rationally. So you're trying to get to your prefrontal cortex. You're trying to bring yourself back into your rational brain. And by the end of it, you don't get to, everything's going to be swell. You get to, um, I had a bad date and it really made me sad, <laughs> you know, which, which is really what happened. Um, and what's amazing is, you know, and this is something that I really tried to hammer home to, to height, uh, my, my, my very much beloved uh, co-author. He was an absolute pleasure to work with. But every so often he'd talk about it just being like really simple. And it's like, it is simple, but you have to, but it's a discipline. You have to do it and do it a lot and do it regularly. You have to do these little exercises constantly. Um, Right. We're not like these robots that we just like, we read, oh, change cognitive distortion, change, <laughs> yeah, change this exactly. one, change, you know, if then, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would be nice if, if you could just put the chip in. Um, and it took, and it took a long time. Uh, but, you know, I'd say like, I remember like the election of Obama, you know, like I remember looking at myself and being like, I'm happy. Like I, I'm, 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 I'm actually not just okay. I'm, I'm actually happy. And partially because I could see those voices that will be like, you know, you're broken, you're broken. And, and I'd hear it. And whereas it sounded just like the gospel truth to me a year earlier, um, it was, it didn't sound right anymore. Like it sounded like, well, that's a, that's a little, that's a little over the top brain. Um, <laughs> I, I love that. It's like, it's like you had installed a meta chip <laughs> yeah. in, in the, in the program. Yeah. And I feel like this, yeah, this yeah. seems a little silly. So how does this relate to yeah. campuses? This relates to campuses by, uh, back then, um, earlier in my career, students were awesome on free speech. They understood uh, offensive comedy. They understood challenging professors. They understood um, the, the, you know, the 60s free speech movement. They still had like a strong kind of like uh, affection for that. The problem in my early career, 2001 to 2012, was um, administrators. Administrators were the ones who were pulling all of the kind of like exaggerated stuff. And to give you an example, like free speech zones. These are things I've fought all over the country. Um, and one of the big spectacular ones I fought early on was the free speech gazebo at Texas Tech University. A uh, 20 foot wide gazebo for all free speech, um, for all uh, protected activities. And I, I always, you always have to point out things like that includes reading a book. <laughs> like whoever wrote this has no clue what they're talking about. But keep in mind, Texas Tech has 28,000 students. And so I, I had one of my friends who has a math degree from MIT um, uh, do the dimensional analysis on it. On uh, God forbid all 28,000 students wanted to exercise their First Amendment rights at the same time. And you'd have to crush them down the density of uranium-238. It is what he worked out. So I was seeing so many cases that involved catastrophizing, that involved fortune telling, that administrators were really, in my opinion, trying to tell students, you're not nearly scared enough. You're not nearly freaked out enough. You're not aware of how fragile you are, all this kind of stuff. And millennials who, who, who get a bad rap were um, 
not really buying it. You know, like they, they, the, the administrators were selling it and the millennials were not buying it. And what changed uh, was uh, the, the school year 2013, 2014 and the school year. Um, and it wasn't the least bit subtle was a dramatic change in attitude about free speech among students. It, um, it was something that like, you know, I had friends who were columnists calling me just basically asking like, what just happened? Uh, because you suddenly saw uh, one, you know, there were, there was suddenly a big spike in disinvitations, you know, uh, speakers being disinvited uh, because they're assumed to have, you know, hateful or hurtful views. Um, you had the first time I ever heard of trigger warnings being um, demanded on campus. The first time I actually saw students demanding new different versions of speech codes. And what was especially, you know, fascinating about it to me was that it was um, justified overwhelmingly in medicalized language. It wasn't saying, uh, you know, that repressive jerk can't speak on my campus because he's, you know, a horrible Republican. Um, Although surely they said that too, it's because it would be traumatic to me in a in, in a in a medical sense. Actually, no, no, I, that that's not exactly that's not precise. Almost never was someone saying that it was, um, uh, with some exceptions, that it would be traumatic to me. They were saying that it would be traumatic to some undisclosed vulnerable group on uh, on campus, or sometimes disclosed, to have that person speak on campus. Um, and you know, there were shout downs at Brown, for example. Um, you know, uh, the disinvitation of Condoleezza Rice, you know, got a lot of people's attention, but people really started paying attention to this um, when it no longer fit the stereotype of um, going after conservatives. It was when they went after the chancellor of Berkeley, for example, or when they went after uh, Christine Lagarde at the in uh, in uh, International Monetary Fund. That's when people went, wait, what just what just happened? And like I said, being on the ground, it was really noticeable. And so I went to Height, who was newly my, my oh, uh, 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 a friend of mine. Uh, we became friends overwhelmingly over feeling like we were kind of like um, trying to be honest brokers in the middle of the culture war, and there weren't that many of us, so we should probably become friends. Um, and I talked to him about the whole CBT idea that essentially I feel like administrators were trying to, whether and not intentionally, but were trying to teach students the habits of anxious and depressed people um, by teaching them this exaggerated sense of fragility, this exaggerated sense of threat, all this kind of stuff. And that, and the students weren't buying it up until right now. And that suddenly the students were mouthing these arguments that had been made for some time, but that seemed like they were actually believing them. And of course, the consequence that we saw coming was that this would uh, result in it, uh, you know, probably a modest increase in anxiety and depression uh, among college-age students. So we wrote an article about it in 2015. Uh, it was a cover story in the, I guess it would have been September Atlantic uh, in 2015. And as I oftentimes, you know, will say when I give speeches, and then we solved the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Now there's no more outrage on campuses yeah, exactly. and no more fragility. We, we yeah. managed to write it right before things got way worse. And what we didn't have at the time was, although I had plenty of reports, by the way, um, I, I, sometimes I, I, I have to remind Height that, you know, since I was closer to campus, or sorry, closer to, you know, many campuses at the same time, I was getting plenty of reports that um, counseling centers were overwhelmed. Um, but, uh, you know, it, um, Height is a good scientist, so he wanted to see the, da the data. He wanted to see, um, see uh, what the data looked like. 
And so we wrote the we wrote the article. Um, it was well received, but then in the in, in 2015, that's when you had you know big explosions of protests on campus. Um, some of them we were psyched about. Others were protests, so we were psyched to see you know pro uh, then people using their free speech. And, and this was a, a sort of an outgrowth of Black Lives Matter. But they um, sometimes, oftentimes, were asking that you know this employee be fired for something they said, that this professor be fired for what they said, that this um, at, at university um, uh, um, at, at UMass Amherst, that this uh, newspaper no or no it was Wesleyan sorry Wesleyan that this newspaper you know stopped getting funded, and so it was one of these times where we'd been wanting. You know, uh, a one one thing that you, you can rightfully criticize millennials for was some amount of political apathy. Um, so it was nice to see the apathy end, but then we were a little bit distressed to see that a lot of the activism was decidedly on the other side of free speech. And this this kind of kept on going with with dips and uh, peaks and valleys until the scariest thing that I've seen in my career was the uh, explosion of violence right after the election of Trump. Um, so you had, of course, the Milo uh, riots. I know everyone hates Milianopolis, I understand, uh, but the riots, if you sit down and, and watch how bad they were and how many people who, you know, got hurt and overwhelmingly people who weren't even there, you know, like who were just innocent bystanders or reporters, for example, during that. You had the assault on Allison Stanger um, at Middlebury. Allison Stanger, uh, she was defending Charles Murray, you know, controversial person who's written on race and intelligence. Alison Stanger was there to debate him <laughs> because she's, you know, a good liberal. She is, you should have her on her show. She is, she is about as decent. Make an intro. Absolutely. About as decent and thoughtful of a person as, as could be imagined. And she got a permanent head injury from being assaulted while defending someone she disagreed with, but thought that she should be able oh, to debate him. That's pretty badass. She is pretty badass. And I, I also love the fact that she's able to, you know, go to some of these conferences where she's surrounded by people who are conservatives and say things that they don't want to hear. And I'm like, so she continues to be just an amazingly brave and awesome person. That, then you had lesser known things like the, um, at Claremont McKenna, students completely surrounded a place where Heather McDonald was supposed to speak. She had to be like rushed off to a new location. Nobody could actually attend her talk. And so that, that really scared us. And so um, we, were, we were actually already writing the book, but we were just in early stages. Um, and you know, it came out in 2018. Okay. So <laughs> we started out with how we got to the title. So back in 2015, you know, uh, I was working on this article with John on and off for about a year. Um, and it, we were really proud of how it came out. And at the very last minute, um, my proposed title, which had always been the incredibly boring, but more accurate to what my argument was, um, arguing towards misery which is really what I was saying was essentially that um, we're, we're teaching, uh, teaching young people the habits uh, that will make them anxious and depressed. Um, that's what I want the title to be. And at the last minute, they decided to change it to the sexier coddling of the American mind. Uh, at the time, John was convinced. Um, I hated it. <laughs> I was like, no, people are going to think we're saying kids today are spoiled, which is not at all what we're saying. We're saying this is entirely our fault. It's something much, and, and I also didn't like the um, the connection to um, the sort of reference to closing of the American mind by Alan Bloom. Not that 
there's anything super wrong with the book Closing the American Mind. It was, you know, a book written by a uh, a Yale professor about what he thought were problems on campus back in, in, in the late 1980s, largely relating to things that could roughly be called PC, but not exclusively. Um, but the, it had no relationship to that book other than having, you know, like a critique of higher education. That was about it. And so I ended up with this title that I, you know, I'm like, great. Everyone's going to just run with coddling um, as being our point that kids today are too coddled. And the good news was overwhelmingly, People didn't initially do that. They, they were they they actually understood that we were saying something a lot more nuanced than kids are spoiled. Um, we we're saying that we're you know teaching um, bad psychological habits. Um, but when the when it came time for the book, I uh, you know I, when I, when I was talking to people about it, um, I was like, no, no, absolutely no way. No, it's not going to be called coddling the American mind. Um, what we signed the contract under was the title disempowered again. Uh, much closer to what I wanted to say, and what and I actually really like the title "Disempowered" because what I feel like we've done is we've taken incredibly bright, incredibly enthusiastic young people and told them, "By the way, you can't really handle your life on your own. By the way, uh, you are much more fragile than you think you are. By the way, words can harm you. By the way, you're not resilient. By the way, you can't do things on your own. By the way." Um, we're not going to teach you life skills that make you feel like a competent, fully realized human being. Um, so th that's what I wanted to emphasize is that is really this is something that's being done to them. Uh, and the publisher, uh, you know, when we were a year into it, didn't really like it. So we started coming up with other t other examples. You know, misguided minds was one we had for a while. I didn't really love that one. I, I actually, you know, at one point in frustration was like, how about this? The Great American Psych Out. Um, and, uh, that was kind of like my joke title that I had in my head, but basically making the point that I feel like when you talk yourself into, in, into something negative, you, that's psyching yourself out. Um, and then at the last minute we were told that the publisher, you know, the, the distributors are insisting that it be coddling the American mind. And so we went back, um, you know, we didn't really have a choice and we went back and just explained all we mean by coddling is that sometimes efforts to help people to protect them can actually harm them that's it that's all we mean by coddling we don't mean kids are spoiled we actually think that they got a pretty rough you know raw deal in a lot of different ways so yeah not not a fan of the title um but i always just urge people it's like i know you might be critical of the title please read the book we even made a video to this extent to, to yeah i know I love that video and, and send it, send me that link again and I'll put it in the show notes. I'm glad that I can give you an opportunity to dispel some myths that probably have been bugging you for, for a long time. Uh, you do choose to use, to frame a lot of this in terms of the fragility, anti-fragility framework. So I think uh, one potential uh, criticism of that could be, uh, and I'm sure that you've gotten people who read your book and are like, yeah, 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 those snowflakes, the, like the ones that have serious mental illness, right? Like someone's like depression. Oh, they're just anti-fragile and kind of uh, using that framework as a way of not having to have compassion for the suffering of a person. Now, when you when you get people saying that, so what do you, what do you say to them? It's hard for anyone to read the book and attribute that to us. Uh, generally, when I've had people try to, who've actually read the book and, and try to say that to us, um, they will even couch it in terms of like, I know you guys don't want to put it this way, but we think blah, blah, blah. You know, like we think that these guys are snowflakes. and Liberal we, snowflakes. Yeah, yeah, and we just point out, <laughs> one, we hate the term snowflakes. 
And two, I'm saying it really is our fault. And three, it's not just about politics, um, that I think that some of the very same causes uh, that you know are causing some of these, what, what we believe are at least contributing to this big spike in, in mental health, it wasn't subtle at all, um, among young people, are are things that that are actually transpartisan that that essentially um uh that you know paranoid parenting is something that um is something that uh for the kind of students who go to elite colleges that's pretty common whether you're right left or center um and that's one of the six causal threads we talk about about why we think we saw such a dramatic disconnect uh between Millennials, and what we would discover was what we were seeing for the first time in 2013, 2014, was a critical mass of people from Generation Z, uh, nine, uh, born 1995, 1996, or later. Um, and that, you know, when you look at the uh, at the different sort of uh, personality and attitude pollings about any number of things, it's a pretty sharp discontinuity uh, between millennials and a Generation Z. Um, and we didn't know that back in 2014. Uh, but wow, we, we learned so much writing the book. Um, and really, it became a detective story about what was so different. And it ended up being this incredibly rich topic. And so the, the conclusion we came to was that it was a confluence of what, what led to particularly the situation on campus and also the situation with mental health um, was, uh, and, the, and as far as like the, the, the claim that gets challenged the most, and you know, I'd be happy to be disproved on this, but I would at the same time, you know, want something that could actually explain why the discontinuity was so sharp, was the first thing we talk about is social media. The next thing we talk about is political polarization. Uh, the next two are both parenting related. Um, and those are paranoid parenting. Um, Kate Julian wrote a cover story for The Atlantic um, a couple months ago that really hit that even harder, um, which was, uh, we can talk more about that, but it was an amazing piece. Then the one that surprised me the most um, that we ended up deciding we wanted a whole chapter devoted to, and that was free play. We were really surprised at how consistently with every, every scholar we talked to, we were hearing that unstructured free time um, plays, lack of unstructured uh, uh, free time can play havoc on all sorts of outcomes for, for, for students, You know, whether it's mental health or um, sense of autonomy, um, creativity, all of these things, um, and realizing that since we were particularly talking about the kind of kids who would go to the elite colleges, you know, these are these poor poor things have been you know structured from 6 a.m. to when when they go to bed at night, and that can really do damage to your idea of your own uh, your your own locus of control. And then the last two, uh, which are related to why so intense in particular colleges, is uh, uh, hyper bureaucratization concern for liability all of these kind of like cold-hearted things that don't get enough attention but dominate my work at fire are you know over regulations over bureaucratizations all of these things that you're suddenly paying seventy thousand dollars a year for um that have that are results of fear of liability um and mass uh, and the explosion of administrators on campus and then the final one which is also the one the conservatives like to point to the most is just changing ideas of social justice um, that's where you get to different ideas of intersectionality, um, where, uh, you know, essentially, um, if you look at everything as kind of like a, a battle between you and the, and, and the oppressors, but you also add to it uh, the idea that, that all your identities intersect, that you end up with ever smaller and more and more isolated 
uh, groups that feel sort of attacked uh, on all sides. Now, we do say that intersectionality, the principle, the idea that our identities intersect, absolutely true. No, no, no doubt about it. But, it. but that doesn't mean that, that it has to turn into this kind of like war of all against all, um, uh, if, even if you come to that conclusion. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, you know, essentially, if you take intersectionality to its absolute... Um, in a way that it wasn't originally intended to have a meaning? If you take it to the, the level at which, you know, all your identities intersect, eventually you get back to individuality. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and... Uh, yeah, the, the, the most sacred part of who you are. Yeah. It is an intersection of identities, um, you know, with a large amount of part of that identity is personal. Um, and that that makes you idiosyncratically you. And and this is actually something where, where I, I think that we've had enough space and nuance for me to explain this. There is one way in which I like the term snowflake, um, and that and that's this: is that people actually Snowflakes. are yeah. unique. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and people will say things like, "No, you're not unique," or "No, you're not." You know, you can argue that someone might not be special, but you can't argue that every individual is unique. It's funny because you said earlier uh, you don't like. No, a snowflake. I was gonna say. Actually, I like the word snowflake in a different context. So yeah, I'm glad you said that. Oh, that's really funny because actually, I do like it as a positive thing, like the idea that you are individually unique. So uh, intersectionality, you know, the intersection of um, of identities can actually be interpreted very positively. But like a lot of things, even if it's academically true, when it starts getting used as a, a way to argue, a, a rhetorical tactic, or and even if people aren't if they're not thinking of it as a tactic, but when it becomes sort of like who a battle of who's more oppressed, kind of nobody wins. Yeah. So uniqueness is is the conglomeration of all your identities. To me, that still doesn't feel quite right because I'd like to think I'm more than just even my identities. Like, there, I don't even have that many identities <laughs> like i like am i allowed to opt out you know <laughs> you know how you like keep getting like uh email lists you want to opt out of like am i do i have to be on the identity train like <laughs> am i allowed to just be a collaboration of like my interests my value i mean there's things other than identity right is, is day the only thing we're allowed to be and that's one of the reasons why like i talk about it coming back to individuality is kind of like you know big part of my identity Clearly, is I'm a comic book reader. <laughs> a part of my identity is the street that I grew up on, and the friends I grew up with, and my you know first job, and all that kind of stuff. I guess we're talking about racial gender identities, which are the most prominent in discussions right now. Yeah, and and, and fair enough, someone could say, well, you know, I can't change having black skin, right? Like, you know, that's that's my identity, and I would be respectful to that that point. But you know, I was just more making the point, like. Do I have to view everything throughout the, that lens when it comes to me understanding myself? Yeah, and, and that was something that we talk about in the book is dif different forms of identity politics and what they mean for political success and happiness. And the thing that we talk about, um, and it's something that's been observed a million times, we just you know uh, chose our own name for it, which was uh, common enemy group politics, like the idea of like who do we find who's the bad guy, and common humanity identity politics. Um, how do I love that distinction? Thank you. How do we get to um, how do we figure out what we have in common? And I think that just flat out, the one that's been more successful, to say the least, um, is uh, is common humanity. Um, I think about particularly here uh, the gay rights movement. Um, I'm actually having 
uh, dinner this weekend with my good friend Jonathan Rausch and, and his husband Michael. Uh, they are uh, Jonathan was one of the early um, uh, people really fighting for gay marriage um, uh, early on, and he talks about how what a big difference it made when people started. Uh, at t towards and this was a movement that was particularly pushed towards the late seventies, which has just come out of the closet. Let all these people who think they don't like gay people remind them that their you know sister, <laughs> uncle, cousin, um, that person they really love, that professor they really loved is gay, and that that, that it, it started a long process, but it makes a huge difference when you start seeing the common humanity um, of of other people. Yeah, absolutely, and. You know, a lot of these ideas are in, in, in are abstract principles, and I do I do see the perspective of those who, I mean, they're really living in really harsh circumstances. Uh, maybe they're those who face discrimination on a daily basis, who say, "Well, that's easier said than done." I'm. There are people who have su such a thing as self defense, right? They didn't they didn't ask for it. <laughs> they didn't they didn't ask to. Uh, you know, they, they, it's what came to them, and so. Yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you at these abstract principles, and then I also want to have compassion for those who have it a lot, lot harder than I do on a daily basis. So, Well, that's one of the reasons why I don't mock people for this stuff. I like that. Yeah, I like that you don't do that. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't. you know, I, I think that, um, you know, people's pain and, and, and that they have it um, is, you know, is, is essential. It's important to have compassion for even people um, you dis you disagree with, uh, but when it comes to you know fundamental rights, ultimately, my uh, my belief, you know, my, one of, one of my core beliefs um, is that ultimately we'll all be better off if human rights are respected, and human rights in, um, include the right to free speech, the right to free thought, um, and that we also, and this is something that I will say that I'm not a libertarian, um, but since I do civil liberties law, I have friends who are libertarians. And one thing that I do, one concept that I have taken from libertarianism that I think is, is worth repeating for sure, um, and I just simply add a naive to it, which is the concept of naive statism. That essentially, you got to remember a lot of times when people are thinking about big ideas, quote unquote, solutions to problems, um, they are relying on an idea that we can create some kind of government apparatus that will fix all of these things. Um, and the thing that I see, and that I will critically say, because I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm on the left side of the spectrum. Uh, you know, I, I'm in a, I'm in a bubble of. Actually, my bubble is better than, than most people. I actually really do try to have friends across the spectrum. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, one argument that I felt like I was getting in all the time was just reminding people, you know, that actual people are going to be running that program, right? And that 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 includes, you know, Trump voting Republicans are going to be running running that program too. And that's the thing that I feel like when I would be when I was working for the ACLU in San Francisco, I felt like I was constantly having this argument over and over again, where it was like, I know you think those hate speech laws are going to be good. They're going to be, but you know who's going to be in charge of them? Your gravest enemies <laughs> are, are going to be in charge of them. So there, there's a lot about um, there's a lot about civil liberties and, and uh, law uh, that. That, um, and one, it's one of the reasons why I think that there's still so much to be said for the for the founders for all their faults, is that it was a great service to us to both be optimistic about human potential, and a not small amount cynical about human uh, uh, about human nature. And I think that a lot of you know 
separation of government, um, common law, uh, uh, common law uh, jurisprudence. A lot of the systems we have in place are and ha- are and always have been to deal with stuff that we're just not all that good at. Yeah, and it just seems like this time in our, our history, we're losing sight of a lot of uh, those insights that they had many years ago. We're losing, we're forgetting what human, well, we're not forget, we're seeing, <laughs> I guess, full force what human nature is like, but we're not seeing the potential as much. And that saddens me, you know, as a humanistic, optimistic guy, ultimately. And and to, and to permit one moment of snark, um, I was going to say, you uh, you might be surprised to know this, uh, Scott, but um, Congress is actually supposed to do things. <laughs> right. yeah, 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 fair enough. <laughs> like, and and sometimes when I when I look at the way government's running right now, it's just it's just like, wow, that wasn't. We 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 put so many checks and balances like in in the way of that, and we're just not using them. Well, this this Trump guy drained some swamp so much that he's he's trumping he's trumping. Everything. I, I, I always say I work for a, a nonpartisan nonprofit, um, and but uh, you know the thing I wrote yesterday was talking about how Trump is suddenly talking about again, not suddenly. He's talking about the um, uh, flag burning amendment. You know, um, they actually no. He, he, he put them in jail. Put them in jail for a year if they. Yeah. My 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 favorite. You, you develop a little bit of a dark sense of humor you when you're doing to. this stuff. <laughs> Um, my my favorite was when he was saying that they'd lose their citizenship if they if they burned a flag, and I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Like, so like, what would happen to me? Like, suddenly I'm what Spain? <laughs> like, like, what, like, what, like yeah. what would Can you just be neutral citizenship? Is that does that exist? Exactly. <laughs> I'm yeah. I'm Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so I wrote I wrote about that yesterday in terms of the bedrock principle. Also making the point, it's like be careful what you wish for, dude. Like the like the principle that undergirds the flag burning opinion. Which, by the way, you should like people should read it. Texas v. Johnson is a beautiful opinion, and it's about the right to burn an American flag. And in it, uh, you know, it says we just can't ban things because just because they're offensive. And I and I was like, dude, you know who has the most to lose from that no longer being part of the law? You. <laughs> Uh, Floyd Abrams actually wrote uh, wrote something saying, like, listen, he would have been arrested in other countries for some of the things he said during the campaign. Um, it's like, no, you, you actually w- you want to keep this uh, the, the, this element in this there. This is good. This this kind of it's a very logical and very fair argument. I think you need to keep making over and over again because I think it, 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 many of us are not aware of that, and we can we can all fall into our traps where we forget, you know, that that. Uh, that things could change very quickly, and suddenly what we're arguing for comes against us, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a very important point. Hey, I'm really appreciative of the time you've spent on this show. Now, you have so many fans that when I put up a, a call on Twitter, you know, anyone have questions for Greg Lukianoff? <laughs> I got a million questions. Do you have an, an extra bonus 10, 15 minutes to answer some Twitter questions? Or Absolutely. Is that cool? Okay, so yep. Amy Alcon... Um, <laughs> uh, I know Amy. Yeah, she's she's the advice she's, goddess she's very funny. of the universe. Good book, by the way. Her her um her book on uh, it, it, a lot of like a lot of the things she builds her advice her most recent advice book around, um, at, which I think is nice manners for people who occasionally say fuck. I yeah, think it might yes, be called. That's what it is, yeah. Um, but uh, w- one of the one of the major sort of psychological premises it really hits home is embodied cognition, um, which is a an interesting idea. Which I haven't given too much thought to. Absolutely, she's a badass, a woman, for sure. Um, so she said, talk to him about what a difference CBT has made for him and it continues to make, and why he decided to be open and coddling about 
his feeling suicidal. Greatly, greatly admire him for this. Also, what about him upbringing personality led him to be the champion of free speech on campus? Feel free to answer any, all of that, or pass. <laughs> well, um, part one, I think we answered to a, to, we uh, to, a, to a large degree. Yeah. Uh, part two, um, how I got so passionate about freedom of speech is, um, you know, for lack of a better word, multiculturalism. Um, what, and actually, I, I think I, I didn't realize how powerful this one factoid about my life actually is, because I usually talk about my father's Russian upbringing and uh, my grandfather fighting fighting the Bolshevik Revolution and his grandfather being a serf. And, you know, like we're, we're surf stock. We were uh, my great great grandfather. I, I, I lose track of the greats um, was, you know, uh, bought his way to freedom in 1858, 1859. Um, you know, if he'd waited a couple of years, he would have gotten it for free because the Tsar Alexander II declared uh, served him over. But we were actually we were ki- we were killing it in in Russia. We we were we were something that would have later been called kulaks because we were peasants who went from being serfs to being professors and judges and landowners very quickly. And we're you know, I'm, I'm I am proud of that. Um, but then the Bolshevik Revolution broke out, and we had to run because people like us were shot in the back of the head. Um, and so my grandfather uh, took took his family to Zagreb um, in Yugoslavia, where the where the poorer whites went, um, the the richer ones went to Paris, like Nabokov. Um, and so my and then my father's dad died when he was six, and my father was get, was made an orphan. He he saw his brother, he, his mother couldn't support him anymore, so he he grew up all over Yugoslavia and just awful awful conditions. He was born in 1926. My father is much older than most people. So long story. Um, I've always taken very seriously like the Russia part of it and the opposing totalitarianism. Um, What I probably undervalue is how much having a father who grew up all over Yugoslavia made me think about things like the culture wars. Because he grew up in a situation where there were people who, looking at him, they're the same freaking people, <laughs> you know, like they, they look the same as each other and they are at each other's throats to kill each other over perceived historical differences between the two of them. So Yugoslavia is like one long story about like what, a, uh, you know, a, a world looks like um, where, you know, it's just um, the war of all against all. So I definitely, you know, grew up with a strong <laughs> suspicion of totalitarianism, a, a, a deep belief in American pluralism. And the actual neighborhood I grew up in um, was kids, you know, there there were a lot of other first generation kids and immigrant kids. And so multiculturalism, like being in an environment where there was no single dominant ethnic group um, and a lot of the kids weren't even, you know, like American multi-generations, they were relatively new or, or flat out new. You got, you had to get used to the idea that if like, um, uh, Danny uh, Nguyen's uh, uh, mother decided what we'd be allowed to say. There'd be all sorts of categories of things that we that we shouldn't say. If my mother decided, like what we'd be allowed to say, it'd be very British because my mom is you know uh, thinks of herself as British. Um, you know, it, 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 all the norms would be different. And in that situation, what makes sense? Free speech. That essentially you actually you get some amount of. Patients, people don't necessarily know where you're coming from immediately. You hear people out. It is true. Occasionally, people get punched. <laughs> um, that that did happen sometimes. But ultimately, the uh, you know, particularly the stark contrast, by the way, between Russian culture, which has a which has a, a pretty biting kind of like brutal honesty, is, is a 
uh, is something that's that's sort of stereotypically Russian. And my mother's sort of exaggerated Irish Britishness, where politeness was absolutely the most important thing in the world. And very early on, I realized you couldn't be both honest and polite. So I started with a real passion for free speech that came from being a first generation kid. And then I went into journalism in high school. And sorry, I did journalism in college. And when people come into your office and are like, you got to fire that columnist, and then you watch the gears turning, because they don't know why you have to fire that columnist yet. They just know they're mad, and that person has to go. And that, so I just got more and more, forgive the expression, radicalized in the direction of free speech. And then finally, the Communications Decency Act of 1995 came out. They were trying to ban, quote unquote, indecency on the internet, um, which laughably unconstitutional, unbelievably con unconstitutional. And I, I, I really dove into that, and that's why I applied to law school. I specialize in First Amendment. Um, people thought I was nuts to put all my eggs in that basket. I probably was. I was very lucky that there was a really plum job as soon as, like a year after I got out. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's one of those things where I hyper specialized in it. I took every class that Stanford offered on uh, constitutional law and First Amendment. And then when I ran out, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty. We could have had a whole other podcast chat just about you. <laughs> Like your life and your family. Oh, my gosh. You're an interesting cat. Oh, thanks. I, lo I love him very much. I'm glad, actually. That's one nice thing about COVID is I've, got, I've gotten to see more of him. Good, good. Um, so Dan Dolmore wants to know, how how's he doing? Because I know you had a recent health scare. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had a pretty rough 2019. Um, it started uh, with us getting rear-ended on the way home from uh, seeing our family up in New England. Uh, down back down to DC, uh, you know, kids in the car. Thankfully, I, I, I had moments of being mildly skeptical of how aggressive, you know, child seats are. Thinking like maybe we're kind of going over the top, and there's a less, you know, intrusive way to do this. After getting hit, you know, in a rear-ending accident that really hurt me and my wife, um, I, I'm never skeptical again. Like the, the kids were completely fine, and we were pretty badly injured. Uh, my God. So it just kept on going. Um, my, we, so we got head injuries. Um, we were so out of it. We didn't understand that we had head injuries. <laughs> it, 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 it took us, you know, talking to a doctor to be like, yeah, all the things you're describing that's making you not think clearly is because you got a head injury. Um, and then my, my, um, this wasn't a surprise, but it was still devastating. My, um, uh, my wife's father died. Um, uh, I loved him very much too. He was an amazing tower of a man. Um, like, you know, we went to the funeral and wake, uh, you know, delirious from head injuries. And it just, it was one thing after the other like that. Um, and I thought I was in the clear. And in the summer of 2019, I find, ta-da, I have a very rare tumor in my jaw. And I'm like, oh, that, that, you know, just get it out. And it's like, actually, we can't get it out without removing, say, 25%, like severing entirely like your jaw. Um, and I was like, you're kidding me. And what they wanted to do, and if I have one characteristic, it's that I'm a walker. I walk everywhere. I've made my entire staff get used to the idea that I that they're going to talk to me while, while I'm walking on the phone. They wanted to take my fibula um, and take my entire fibula. And you can take my dignity, but you can't take my... <laughs> <laughs> you can't take my fibula. Yeah. Um, so I was horrified, um, and, I, and I looked for doctor after doctor after doctor. I was trying to get in front of the guy that was considered to be the best guy in D.C., but, you know, 
and I pulled every string I possibly could. And finally, he was the 12th doctor I talked to. And he was the first one to be like, they're, they're telling you something that's too aggressive. It's something designed for metastatic cancers. This one generally is not metastatic. So you can actually cut the margins a little closer. Um, and that they'd patch the difference with something called morphogenic bone protein with the idea that the two sides of your jaw would, would heal together, which is miraculous. I mean, I know the technology has been around for some time, but it's still, you know, it would tell your body to grow new bone. And uh, I spent, you know, I, the, the, the surgery was, was no picnic. Um, and I had to have a titanium plate in my jaw, which I still have. And I look a little funny. Um, but since it's been a lot worse. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And since I couldn't, um, uh, I didn't, well, I didn't want to go to get the follow-ups during COVID. Um, I didn't know for a good nine months if the surgery had been a success. And I was, you know, starting to kind of convince myself that, uh, that maybe it wasn't given, you know, what I thought was swelling and all this kind of stuff. And I found out last week, um, that the, the surgery was a success. The two sides of my, um, uh, jaw had fused together due to that miraculous morphogenic bone protein. And so I've been feeling like a million bucks since then. Cause like the, the, the single biggest thing was because if I had to have more of that surgery, the thing I was told was it's going to hurt a lot more. Um, it's not going to go as well because you've already messed with things in there and having that off of my mind. And this is the kind of can't, uh, this is the kind of tumor that generally doesn't return. Like once you've gotten rid of it, you, I should be done with it. Knock on wood. <laughs> yeah, I'll knock on wood too. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks for that update. I know a lot of people. A lot of people really care about you. So. Oh, thank um, you. Appreciate that update. I get actually surprisingly like warm fuzzies from Twitter a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are. You are. You. You said Jonathan beloved. You're pretty beloved too, my man. So. Don't, oh. Don't forget that. Um. Uh. So Art Robson. Uh. Just ask him how he felt when he won the gold. When I won the gold. Yeah. What did I win the gold in? I was wondering that myself. <laughs> okay. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. Uh, that's right. I haven't heard this joke in a long time. Greg Luganus. Um, when I was a kid, the person who had the name that was closest to mine was the uh, diver, the Olympic diver, <laughs> oh, Greg Luganus. Um, so I, I, I to, who won the gold medal uh, in the Olympics. Um, I did actually get that a fair amount. I actually got Lukianoff an awful lot as, as a kid too but yeah i got greg luganis i never really like didn't hurt my feelings because i was like oh thanks i'm olympian cool metal um but it was a pretty bad butchering of my name oh you said you also got greg lukianoff isn't that your actual name oh lukianoff um that? uh that, that that was what i would um that's the way people would mispronounce my name oh and it would kind of horrible well no but in that case it was it was honest it was an honest mistake because if you look at the spelling of my name um, yeah, what you're supposed to know, my dad came over in the 1950s when he was in his late twenties. Um, and he went to university of Wisconsin at Madison. It's very cute to hear with a Russian accent, go Badgers. Um, but you're supposed to know that the I and the A together in that transliteration stands for that backwards R, which is the Russian letter. Yeah. Um, so I tried to get my family to change the spelling of our name to L U K Y A N O V which is much closer to how you actually said it. And you said my name very well, um, but they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't change it. Okay. Well, 
uh, I'm going to end end this amazing uh, podcast interview with with something positive. So right. Susan Groff asked, "What might be some rays of hope you've seen since publishing the book?" Please <laughs> give us something here. I was, all I, bottom. <laughs> I was I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that because oh, I didn't no. want to. Because right now I'm you got no hope like, for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm super duper pessimistic at the moment. I know. Um, since writing the book, uh, I mean, I at least have been pleased by the fact that overwhelmingly. Um, people have been charitable to it, even if they disagreed with it. Um, you know, they made good arguments, and that's productive. You know, just, just the I did have one review written of it that was kind of, that was, that blew me away because it was just like, um, this sounds like something this bad person would say, and that's like something that the Trump would have said, and and like it was basically just this entire guilt by association, dark comparison thing. It's like, wow, you've made no substantive argument. You've just been like, they might be like bad people. Um, and I'm like, okay. Um, but overwhelmingly, I think the conversation has been very uh, constructive. Uh, I will be honest. Short term, I'm not super optimistic. Um, short term, I think particularly the next six months politically have me scared, frankly, half to death. Um, I think that uh, I'm seeing things that really scare me in the administration, you know, that, that makes it sound like it's the, that the uh, already like the election is going to be contested on campuses. You know, I've seen this big uptick in you know speech policing and uh you know you should check out some of the examples because they're 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 you know some of them are just ridiculous um but here's why i am hopeful about free speech free speech works really well it's really good for telling you what problems you have and particularly the ones you want to ignore so freedom of speech, uh, my best hope in it is that the societies that are more open, that have more free speech, will always have an advantage over those that aren't. Um, and I hope that people, even just out of their own self-interest, will continue to defend this fundamentally important human right, um, even though so many forces conspire against it. Thank you, Greg, for being such a voice of reason and compassion in this this, I don't even know how to what adjective to use there. Time. I don't even know what the right word there is. Crazy doesn't seem to, to quite capture what what we're experiencing. But it ain't dull. It, it, that's true. That's true. Oh, great. God bless you, man. And thanks for being on the Psychology Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 